you'll turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 17. Last week we did a, a quick preview of Luke, and then we talked about the first four verses where Luke is saying, I'm going to give you um, a sequential, accurate account, essentially of God keeping the promise that he made all through the Old Testament, and we're going to start with that account this morning, interestingly enough, the account, the account is not about the central figure of all of Scripture, who is Jesus. We're going to find that the account kind of starts with somebody else. And it's been said that we are beginning with really the last Old Covenant prophet, but it's written in the New Testament. So we're going to take a look. I've entitled this uh, message, With Healing in Its Wings, and I, I took that from the Old Testament passage that prophesied this event that we're about to read this morning. So Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. Hear now the word of God. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And when they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He also will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you don't waste words. We know that this account of the birth and of the parents of John the Baptist is highly significant for us to understand what you would want us to know as we read and study this gospel that will really center on the person and work of Christ. So help us, Father, to understand these words, that we might think your thoughts after you and be formed into that very image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so verses 5 through 7, let me reread these, so we put these into sections. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Luke uh, begins his account, his gospel, with about as big of a contrast as you can have among humans. Herod versus Zacharias and Elizabeth. Herod was about as cruel and calculating as any king could be. You know, they'd call him Herod the Great. I think it was Herod the Jerk. <laughs> you know, this king, this big fake king, Herod. He just, I mean, so you understand how bad this guy was. He would murder his own wives, his own children, at the mere suspicion that they might be a threat to him. And he will be remembered 
in all eternity, because the Word of God is eternal, he will be remembered in all eternity as the monster who killed all the children, all the male children in Bethlehem, because he and he alone wanted to be king. This threat. And he wasn't even a real king. He was kind of a fake king, just appointed by Rome to kind of look over the Israelites. Luke calls it the days of Herod. And I, I kind of had to do some research on that. Why would we say the days of Herod? And I remember I thinking to myself, I heard a joke years ago about finding a coin. If you found a coin that said 500 B.C. on it, how much would that coin be worth? Nothing. Because 500 B.C., they didn't know it was B.C., so the coin would be a fake. So the way they dated years prior to Christ was, who's in charge? Right now, who's in charge? The days of Herod. That's the date, the days of Herod. And we see that as we look at the way dates are established prior to Christ. What I find interesting is that when, by the time Luke wrote this, Herod was long gone. He, he basically ruled until about A.D. 4. So the days of Herod are done. But what I think is ironic and somewhat beautiful is that all the dates after that are calculated by the birth of the person that Luke's about to write about later in this chapter. Luke sets Herod in a backdrop against Zacharias, which means Jehovah remembers, and his wife Elizabeth, which means God is an oath or God is reliable. And unlike Herod, and quite frankly, unlike most of Israel at the time, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and these words are astonishing, in verse 6, are righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord. Wouldn't that be nice for that to be said about you? Now, this is not to say that they were sinless, for all have sinned. And, 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 you know, no one is righteous, it says in Romans 3.10. And it's the same word, by the way, righteous there as it is here. What we have to understand when we read our Bibles is that the scriptures will often use words like this to describe faithful people. Noah. It's used to describe Noah. It's used to describe Job, to a lesser extent, David, where, you know, God is kind of going, no, these people are walking a faithful life. What we have here is a highly faithful couple of, of religious pedigree, of religious stock. He was a priest, and his wife was the daughter of Aaron. And even though priests didn't have to marry within, there was something where they were dedicated to do that. There was something very unique and valuable and special about that. But more importantly is that even though they were raised in the church and even though they had, you know, the great resume, what more important than that that Luke brings out is that they were walking in faith. They, they were living out, if you will, that, that pedigree. Their moral behavior and their worship is likely what is meant by commandments and ordinances. So basically what he's saying is they seek to keep the commandments and they go to church. Yet, as God's plan and providence would have it, we read they had no child. And being advanced in years, you know, I think the King James Version said they're stricken with years. The prospect of having a child was beyond the hopes of that which is ordinary. Right? They're, by now, they're kind of going, this is probably not going to happen. Now, we have to understand, and I think most of us do, I, maybe not, maybe you don't, that not, having, not being able to have children is heartbreaking. It's a very difficult thing for people when they come to realize there's not going to be any children in their life. I, and I hope we're all sensitive to that. I hope that we recognize how difficult that can be for people. And I think Luke brings this up with the recognition that we would understand the difficulty of that. But we also need to understand is that at the time in history when this was taking place, the idea of not having a child 
and the warmth of a, pro a progeny. I mean, just yesterday, I was able to hold a baby who I was thinking about it, who was like the third generation of people who I've had the opportunity to minister to. But then I realized that I was working with the, 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 the parents. So this really, this little baby was like the fourth generation. And I'm holding this little baby, and I'm kind of like, kind of enjoying it. But it was more than that at the time, because when this was written, it was beyond the fact that I am emotionally attached to this child. Children were basically your retirement program. You, you needed children to live. As you got older, the government wasn't taking care of you. Your children were taking care of you. So it really even went beyond that, which is difficult for us today. I think it's also important to recognize this, that not being able to have children was not a judgment. At the time, people thought that. They thought, you know, if you read the Old Testament, a lot of snickering about women who were barren and not having children. But what do we read here? Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were blameless. They were righteous. They were good people. So clearly, the inability to have children wasn't some judgment of God because of their bad behavior. But I also want to point this out, that the disadvantage that they had, the inability to have children, did not yield bitterness or faithlessness in this couple. I can't tell you how many people I know, and it's not just the, this issue of not being able to have children, but how many people, when things don't go quite the way they want things to go, become so bitter at God? Like, we've got this plan, and maybe the Christian faith has been built to you in such a way that God's going to give you what you want. And you know what? Sometimes that doesn't happen. And we need to recognize that he withholds no good thing from those who walk in uprightness. Psalm 8411. God's not holding back from you or me that which we need. And what we see here with Zacharias and Elizabeth is, is a couple, a stellar couple, who did not grow bitter because they did not have what everybody else seemed to have. Luke writes that they were, and he uses the phrase, righteous before God. It's one thing to be righteous before men, right? We all walk into church with the kind of countenance and look on our face you know, I remember when I, I didn't grow up in church, so I remember when I first started going to church thinking, wow, everybody here seems to have it together. Then I became a pastor. <laughs> and, then my, and then my conclusion was, none of them have it together. <laughs> we're, we're a room full of sinners. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so this idea of being righteous before God is way different than being righteous before man. There was a very common, I'll use the term, externalism that was taking place at the time. Jesus would routinely chastise people for doing their good deeds to be seen by men. I mean, he uses all sorts of examples. You're, you just want to be seen as holy. You want to be seen as righteous, but God knows what's going on. I remember somebody one time during Q&A trying to, you know, and we try to be nice during Q&A, but trying to justify themselves when they said, well, God knows my heart. And I'm like, I know, that's the bad news. <laughs> Their faithfulness flowed from a true gratitude of what God had already done. They already had the riches of heaven. And their behavior was a result of recognizing that God had already given to them more than they could possibly know for all eternity, not from an effort to gain from God what they thought they needed. I think it could be said of them what we read about in Job when, right, when his family is destroyed and everything is going wrong. And I hope this is our disposition as well. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or, you know, so you got a bad situation with Job. None of us want to be in that Job-like situation. Another bad situation with Meshach, Shadnach, Shadrach, and Abednego, right? Their whole nation's in slavery, and they're about to be thrown in a fiery furnace. If they don't bow down 
to this false god. And you, know, you might say, well, I don't have a false god. And I'd say, well, you know, we're all battling against false gods all the time. Whatever's controlling you. It might be controlling you in terms of your decision. It might be controlling you in terms of your emotion, your passion, what have you. In this case, you know, they're being threatened if they don't bow down to this false god. And they make this statement, and I do pray this would be all of our prayer, that, they would, that we would respond like this. If it be so, you know, you're going to throw us in this furnace. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He can. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But I love verse 18. It's very, very human, right? But even if he doesn't, let it be known, O king, that we are not going to, be, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You've got to love that stubborn. There's something good. I like the term stubborn. Sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes I like it in sports, you know, when I'm coaching my team or I'm, you know, like, and it looks like we're about to lose. I'll use that. Hey, let's be stubborn. Let's just put our foot down and not let it happen. How much more in terms of the disposition of our lives when the world is trying to get us to cave? Be stubborn. My God will deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I ain't going to do that. Do we have the courage for that? I do pray that we would have both the faith and the faithfulness that would be produced by what God has already done. Are you still waiting for God to pay out? Or are you living a life recognizing that the payment has been made? How different would our worship be if we fully understood what has been done for us? How different would our convictions be in terms of keeping the commandments if we understood what has been done for us? So, in an environment that was hostile to the true religion, all right, it wasn't like the Roman Empire was all that thrilled about the covenant people of God. So we're in that environment, and we're in an environment where the true religion was followed by so few So not only are they in an environment where the government is hostile to them, they're in an environment, you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth, where most of the people who are going to church with them are phonies. That's the environment that Jesus is born into. That's the environment that John the Baptist is born into. But what does Zacharias do in this environment? Well, let's look at verses 8 through 10. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. I mean, you know, we're looking at this kind of religious, you know, ritual taking place. And we tend to want to go to the next part of the story. But remember the environment. We're in an environment where the people, the covenant people of God, were essentially in slavery to Rome hovered over by a beastly king. I mean, I know that we bemoan the political situation, and I bemoan it as well. You know, and not to get into whether or not there was election fraud and what have you, but, you know, this environment's way different. Herod didn't have to engage in election fraud. He just killed everybody. And as bad as everything is today... We have to understand that this environment, politically, is worse. And and, and as weak, and I'll get to this in a minute, as today's Western church, it was worse. But we're we're looking at Zacharias and Elizabeth right now. That's where Luke is saying, "Let's, let's focus our attention on this couple. Let me add one thing to this. So the environment politically is bad, the environment religiously is bad, And not only that, how long had it been since God had spoken? We tend to think, when we read our Bibles, that God is around every corner talking to people. That's First of all, that's not true even in the Bible. But here, how long had it been since God had uttered a word to his covenant people? 400 years. 400 years of silence. That'd be like God not having any communication with us since the Reformation. You know, since Martin Luther. So you have silence. Yet, Zacharias 
does his priestly duty. And, and he does it for real. Now, what is, what's going on here? And I'm not going to get into the details of this. Briefly stated, the priests at the time had been organized into 24 divisions. And it was the responsibility of one priest to enter into the holy place and burn incense. And they would, like, draw lots, it says, right? A lot fell to him. There were probably, they calculated about 18,000 priests in Israel at the time. So this was going to happen once in his life. But it had been going on for a long time. For a long time, you've got this ritual taking place. You show up, burn incense, this event takes place. It is, it is possible for religious or ministerial activities to become rote, repetitious and rote. You understand what I mean by that? But let me tell you this also. Repetition does not have to become rote. By, by road, I mean mechanical, right? You're just doing your duty. You get up, you do your duty. You say your prayer, you do your whatever, your gesticulations. You just do it, and then you move on with your day. It doesn't have to become mechanical. Take this for the challenge that it is. If, if hearing on a Sunday morning that your sins are, are washed away does not somehow evoke a certain level of joy in your life, you have probably not engaged in an honest analysis of your own sinfulness. If, if going to the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day has become rote and repetitious to you, as people accused, right? They were like, if we go every week, it's going to become rote and repetitious. I have not found that to be true, but if it is true of you, maybe you are not engaging in a deep enough understanding of the price paid for you in order for you to have peace with God throughout the course of the week. You know, I could tell my wife I love her every day, but if I don't really love her, those words are going to be shallow. And like I said before, so I tell her quarterly. Zacharias was no such feeble worshiper. He was blameless in keeping the ordinances before God. So he was doing it thoughtfully. It must have meant a great deal to him to burn the incense. And we have to understand this, I think, this whole event. It, it's all about prayer. The incense, it's all, this whole event is a, that he's engaged in is a praying event. And, and let's understand this. So, you know, we pray to God, and in the Bible, that is accompanied in the Old Covenant with incense, right? And we saw that as we studied through Revelation, this idea of incense. And we should not have a casual disposition toward the fact that God hears our prayers. Like we act when we're talking to God as if, yeah, of course he hears. Well, God is, God is omniscient, which means he knows everything and he hears everything. But when I talk about hearing the prayer, I'm talking about God responding to our prayer as we being a child and him being our father is not to be understood as a casual thing. John Calvin said it this way, the design of the incense was to remind believers that the sweet savor of their prayers does not ascend to heaven except through the sacrifice of a mediator. God hears your prayers because Jesus died for you. And while Zacharias was doing his priestly duties, we read that the whole multitude of people were praying outside. So now you've got, this is the event. I just want to, you know, encourage you at some level. We have in our church, every Sunday, a group of people. I think when I read this, it reminded me of it. That they're in this room back here and they're praying. They get here before church and they pray similar to these other people praying outside. I think they wouldn't mind having company if you would like to join them in that prayer that is offered prior to the service. I think we underestimate the power of prayer. 
we got all these programs, we got all the design, you know, I try to do my homework and study, but when it gets right down to it, there's something going on in this invisible, immaterial world, and there's some power in prayer that if we're not doing it, a lot of stuff ain't happening. Psalm 141, 1 and 2 reads, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. All right, so we have 400 years of silence, and then we have this fearful encounter, verses 11 through 13. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So he walks into this room. I mean, the room's supposed to be empty. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, because I'm sure he was like deep in thought, once in a life, I got to get this right, I want to do it right. Have you ever been in a situation where you're so focused on something that the mere a person walks up and goes, hey, and you jump? I've, I've had that happen. I've done that to other people, like not on purpose. Well, sometimes on purpose, but what it must have been like for him to walk in this room, and there he is at the right side. You know, not to get too far into this, but I'm thinking, I wonder if the angel knew that it was going to be scary. I think he did. I don't think he was like, hey, I can't believe you're afraid. I think being afraid can be healthy sometimes. I mean, think of um, close calls you might have, like in an accident or something, and then you're reminded to be a little more careful. I remember when I was a kid climbing the cliffs here in Palos Verdes, you know, you're a teenager and you just start climbing. And I remember getting to a place where I couldn't go up or down. Like I was stuck. And this was before cell phones. And I remember thinking, so I don't even remember how I got out of this mess. But I remember thinking, because of the fear I had, to not do that again. So sometimes fear, and I, you know what? I think we, could add to, we can add to this. It's not just fear. Sometimes heartache Sometimes anxiety, sometimes, you know, discomfort, all these things. These aren't things, by the way, that God was out of the room, and then that happened, then he showed up. But we read that God, I mean, we read of stories, you know, of Jesus, it's a storm, right? And he's sleeping, and they're all like, where are you? Why don't you help? And he gets up, and he calms the storm, and they're like, whew. Well, then they got afraid of him who was in the boat with him. But when we start reading the whole Bible, we realize this. He doesn't just cause, calm the storm. He causes the storm. So he's bringing us to a place in our, in our heartache, in our pain, in our sorrow, wherever it is, the lack of certainty you have of your future, where you're just kind of grinding away, you know, at night, when you're just trying to figure out who am I going to be, where am I going to go, how are we going to pay the... What you name, whatever it is you're going through, right? It's not as if God has not designed that in order to accomplish something. And you know what's accomplished here? It's very simple. What does the angel say? Don't be afraid. What we're going to find throughout Luke is a lot of don't be afraid taking place. So let me just push that a little bit. When God tells you not to be afraid, I mean, first and foremost, I'd mentioned a minute ago, right, that Jesus was on the boat. He calmed the storm. Like, they're all afraid of the storm. Then he calms the storm. And then remember the response of the disciples, the apostles, after that? Then it says, then they were very much afraid. Kind of, who's in this boat? Right? But when God looks at us and says, don't be afraid, if we don't fear, if we don't, if he's saying, don't be afraid of me, we don't need to be afraid of anything. It... 
Having, having the requisite fear of God and then God calming that fear should produce in us a lack of a fear of anything. It's like the old tombstone, right? He feared man so little because he feared God so much. I mean, I'm not to make this too basic, but I remember um, the movie uh, Shrek. And they're about to go into the woods and donkey's afraid. Remember what Shrek says? He goes, you don't be afraid. I'm scarier than anything in this forest. And that's what it means for us. God's going, look at it. I'm on your side. And if I tell you don't be afraid, don't worry about what's going on in the forest. I'm scarier than all of that. There's some debate here, by the way, of the prayer that is answered. So he goes in there and he's praying. Like I said, that's what this all was about. And the angel, Gabriel, who that, who's the angel here, says, look, don't, you know, your prayer is answered. So there's a big debate. What prayer is answered? Because right away he says, you guys are going to have a baby. And I have no doubt that earlier in their life, they probably prayed for a baby all the time. But a lot of people are like, well, he probably stopped praying about having a baby a long time ago. And the normal prayer in this event would be that God would keep the promise he had made to bring the Messiah to deliver the people. That was the promise that God had made, and usually this event, that's the prayer. So which is it? Was it the normal prayer that the priest would make, Lord, bring your Messiah to deliver your people, or was it, hey, and we'd like a baby? I, I tend to think it was the first, but it, what I realized after I'd studied this for a while was that God basically answered both those prayers. They had the baby and the answer in terms of the promised Messiah. And as I was reading the debate, I saw something I thought was very um, encouraging. And I thought to myself, well, this, because I'll hear people ask me, you know, at what point do you quit praying for something? Because there is a precedent in the Bible where God says, you know what, I'm, don't bother me about this anymore. He's talking with Moses. I'm, you know, Moses wanted to go into the promised land, and God's like, I've heard enough. You, know, you might as well not say that anymore. So there is a precedent to not do that. But what I, what I read in this was, you know, we may, we may give up praying. We may go, you know, look, I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and it's been years and years and years, and clearly the answer is no. And we may be discouraged and go, okay, I guess the answer is no, and we move on. But that doesn't mean that God forgot our prayers. And it doesn't mean that he's not still going to answer the prayer, even though we have not prayed it in years. And one of, one of the commentators had made that observation, and I found it very precious. Like, my prayers are so feeble, but God ans- God's answers are so superior. You ask me for stuff, and I forget it all the time. God just doesn't forget. Well, here we have now a record of another supernatural birth, right? They are, ba- they are past childbearing years. We do see that throughout the Bible, do we not? We saw it with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. We saw it with, um, with Hannah. We saw it with uh, Elkanah and, or Manoah, you know, uh, Samson's parents. Every once in a while, we see this kind of supernatural birth taking place with two parents who are past childbearing years. And I think there's a point to that. The point basically is God's made a promise and he doesn't need your help. Remember, remember Abraham and his kind of going, God's not going to keep it. I need to help him out. And Sarah's like, I got an idea. Let's get the handmaid. And that's created a problem that's existed to this day. Right? So you got this problem. God's kind of going, no, you've, you've got to just trust me. And we see that again in this last, if you will, old covenant prophet, John. But we're going to move on and, you know, in the weeks to come into the central figure And the birth of Christ is going to be unlike all those other supernatural births because all of those births, as miraculous as they were, still involved a biological father. But that won't be the case with Jesus. It's going to be something way different when it comes to Christ. Well, everything, just so you understand, that we're reading here is preparatory. This name, John, that God has commanded means Jehovah's gracious gift. And as wonderful as all this is, and it's in the Bible and we should know it and study it, be moved by it and what have you, if I can use the words of John, what we're reading about here is unworthy to untie the sandal of the story that we're going to read later in this chapter. 
I mean, those are the words of John when he's talking about himself versus Jesus. That story that John is called to herald. What is about to happen? Well, last three verses, four verses. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You know, I'm going to stop there. I just thought, you know, as I was reading this this morning, something hit me. You know, you have the birth of John the Baptist, you can have the birth of Jesus, and it's all attended by joy, and you're commanded to have joy, not just the joy of God keeping his promise, but parental joy. And yet both John the Baptist and Jesus were going to have rough outcomes. I mean, it would be difficult for me if it was revealed to me that the child I'm about to have is going to be beheaded and their head's going to be put on a platter. That's what's going to happen to John. And it kind of made me think that God's going, look at, you have joy right now. You're going to have a baby. Enjoy that baby. You're going to have joy. So it's the joy of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but it goes on. Because you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're not the only ones who are going to rejoice. I think it's very interesting here. Luke tends to be so positive, like he's just showing the good stuff in a way here in this story. Clearly what's going on here is that God has a plan that's going to affect all the families of the earth, we read in Genesis 12. What God is about to keep a promise, and I, you know, and I know I just spent 63 weeks in Revelation, so I'm not going to bring you back there, but... You know, the argument I'm making in Revelation was that the lion's share of the Revelation is moving from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and the eternal Son of God is going to explode into history, and history is never going to be the same. And it's this explosive event that John is actually going to be preaching about. The Lord is coming. Are you ready to deal with what he's going to bring into this environment? Because the whole world's going to change. At the time that this was written, the entire world, the Bible say, says, laid under the sway of the wicked one. But by the end of the ministry of Jesus, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, who's in charge? Who does it all belong to? I'll tell you, it's a pet peeve of mine when I hear pastors say, you guys have to realize the devil's in charge. The devil's in charge. The devil is not in charge. The devil is God's devil. The devil is God's junkyard dog. The devil does only that which God designs, and it's ultimately for God's own glory. Not only when it comes to things like the cross, but your life as well. Everything big and small. Jesus is coming into history. John the Baptist is being called to make these people ready for what's about to take place. Now, just to, you know, because it's in here and not to get too far into this, the prohibition against wine and strong drink is obviously not universal. In Matthew 11, Jesus will say, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And you said he had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. So, I mean, so this is not a universal. Some people would argue that it was was a Nazarite vow. Maybe it was. There was a certain sect of Israelites who were Nazarites, but he doesn't mention the cutting of the hair. So I don't know. I don't have an answer to you whether or not it was a Nazarite vow or not. But the ministry is unique, and I think that goes without question. John the Baptist was a very unique ministerial person. And then uh, uh, Luke writes this, that John, and this is astonishing, that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, we see this kind of language elsewhere. In Psalm 22, David says, you made me trust in you at my mother's breast. So this idea, you know, that 
you've got to be old enough and intellectual, you know, in order for God's grace or spirit to be upon you is a misunderstanding of God's grace. How many of you ever heard of the term decisional regeneration? It's a term where people kind of talk about the regeneration means to be born again. And the argument goes like this, that I make the right decision and then I'm born again. Right? John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you can't see nor enter the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, I don't believe in that. I believe that you make the right decision once you're regenerated. Once God gives you life, then you start making the right decisions. You don't make right decisions on your own. So whatever right decision we make is a result of the grace of God. It's not something that produces the grace of God. Who do we think we are? I'll just say three quick things about this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. One is, his ministry is lifelong, right? It starts in the womb, and it's going to continue until the other Herod takes his head. Second, those who think that the unborn baby is a mere cell cluster find themselves at odds with that which God has determined to be made in his image. Cell clusters are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, you know, and I've got to argue for my pedo-baptist position and, you know, that I don't love Baptists, pat-pat, you know. But even though the ordinary means that God uses to save those people who are outside his covenant is the preaching of the word, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That is the ordinary means. We have to understand against the baptistic argument that God is quite capable of pouring his spirit out upon those who have not yet exhibited the capacity of intellect. That's one of the reasons why we view the children in this church as one of us. It's, people will say, you know, you've heard this argument. Why are you baptizing somebody when they haven't made a decision? See, I think wrapped in that is kind of a misunderstanding, actually a bad picture of the decisional regeneration I just talked about. We're assuming our children are one of us, unless, like Esau, they grow up and say, I don't want to be one of us. And so this idea that God's Holy Spirit cannot come upon somebody until they're smart enough to figure stuff out has got works righteousness kind of wrapped all over it. Well, what might not be immediately apparent to the reader is the language here. The turning of the children of Israel to their God. He's going to turn the children of Israel to their God. Now, you're reading that and you're like, well, wait a minute. If God is their God, why do they need to be turned to him? These are the types of things that if you had all week to read this, that you'd probably find yourself vexed at. I would say here's one of the similarities we have to today's church. I mean, I think you know, sometimes it's hard to find a similarity from the first century church to the 21st century church. Here, I think, is a similarity. You have to understand this. Israel was the Old Covenant church. That was the church. They were God's covenant people. And obviously, in the New Covenant, we're the church. Right? People who profess the true religion and their children, that's the church. This Old Covenant church is the church that John is going to be born into. He's not born into the New Covenant church. He's born into Israel. Jesus is born into Israel. Right? He's, he, he comes during the law. How was the church doing that they were born into? The church had become lifeless and faithless. That was the church. The very, the very people of God needed to be turned. John the Baptist was talking to Israelites. He's like... There's some big event taking place. The, the, the acts, you know, we tend, I don't know, sometimes I don't know what we think making ready, preparing a people to make ready for the Lord means. You know, I don't know that John the Baptist was like, Jesus is going to come and show the four spiritual laws. Are you ready to hear it? That is not, that's not the acts. It's at the root of the tree. That is not the winnowing fork is in his hand. I mean, a big part of this is judgment is coming. He is coming, and he's going to make everything right. Which side of that are you going to be on? The people of God had become so faithless, so lifeless, that they needed to be turned. 
This is the message that John would vigorously preach. When he, read his sermons. He was not an easy believism guy. In the current West, I think we see great similarities. I think we see a distraction of the true Christian doctrine and faithfulness. I think it's all over the place. On one side of this big distraction, we see churches with rainbows. And by rainbows, I'm not talking about Noah's rainbow. Like I, 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 I drive by and I see that and I think to myself, you know, my heart breaks. You know, there was a time when I'd get kind of angry and now my heart breaks in terms of, on the other side, the flip side, the side that I'm probably more prone to be vulnerable to is when the church is reduced and seduced to become just a political voting block. You've got to be careful with that, too. Somebody asked me one time, a pastor asked me, because I tend to not have a vision for the church. I just don't, I don't know. You know, like, I don't, it's not on my calendar. Where's the church going to be in five years? I don't know. And I realized when I was asked that question, he's like, what's your vision, vision for the church? And my answer was word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. And I think if we do that, then, then we'll know where the rainbow belongs. If we do that, then we'll know how we should vote. If we, if we stick with word and sacrament, then we will be more like Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? Walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord. They, they both have to be there. John will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the passage says. I don't think it means that he's going to be Elijah reincarnated. You'll hear it sounds to be a conflict, right? Like, are you Elijah? No. Are you Elijah? Yes. And you're like, well, which is it? Well, he's not Elijah reincarnated. He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah in the same way that Elijah came to call the people of Israel to repent. In a greater way, John the Baptist would fulfill that same Role. We read this, it's the very last book in the Old Testament. This is a fulfillment of the very last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 1, tells us that God is going to send him to prepare the way before him, before God. And I have to say, as you read that, Malachi 3, then you get into chapter 4, there's something very beautiful in the words of this prophecy. Verse 2 of chapter 4, But to you who fear my name... The son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You know, the end of the old covenant is kind of like God's kind of going, look, I'm going to do this, but if you don't respond, there's going to... the last word in the old covenant is the word curse. It's if you, you know, it's going to be whether or not by the grace of God you respond well to me fulfilling my promise. Because even though, as I said a minute ago, Luke tends to be optimistic, right? He kind of paints the good picture. The faithlessness of Israel produced disruption in households. That's not hard to figure that out, right? You know, I've made a a Christian family that worships together, that prays together. You know, we should expect that that family will be a more united family than a family that is walked away from the faith, doesn't pray together, doesn't go to church together, has no fellowship together. But Gabriel tells Zacharias that John's ministry will become a source of healing within households. Turning, verse 17, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Of course, it'll go beyond households. Those living in disobedience will have their eyes opened to see the wisdom of the just. Have you seen the wisdom of the just? The wisdom of righteousness? I mean, do you, are you there? Do you kind of, I mean, I understand none of us are righteous. No, not one, but do your eyes see it? Have your eyes been opened to see that which is good and right and true? Do you know who your Savior is? Do you know who your Master is? I'm not saying, are you a perfect servant? I'm just asking, do you even know who your master is? What is not said here, what is going to be said soon, is that this wonderful healing, like a major surgery, 
like a battle, even a battle won, is going to have casualties. In the very next chapter, we'll be told that Jesus is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So John's kind of recording, recording, or Luke's recording, good things are going to happen. But very briefly, he's going to go, by the way, with the good things, some bad things are going to happen too. Jesus was not unclear. Like Luke's writing about, hey, fathers will be turned toward their children, children toward their parents, families, you know, will be blessed. But then Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace, but a sword. And father will be against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter. Well, which is it? You know what it is? Both. It's both. Remember I had mentioned last week that Luke's the one who records the thief on the cross going, today, will you bring me into your kingdom? The other gospel writers don't write that. That's not a contradiction. That's Luke kind of going, I want to add this to the story. But there's no conflict in the story. And Luke here is kind of going, right now I'm just going to say, good stuff is going to happen. But soon we're going to start reading and go, you know what, that good stuff is going to be accompanied by some rough stuff. We talked in the whole Revelation series how Christ came and the Old Covenant came to an end. The New Covenant began. B.C. turned into A.D. and it was explosive. That's what's gonna, that is what John is calling to announce. God is saying, get people ready because Jesus is coming and the axe is at the root of the tree. Are you ready? Now let me tell you a little bit about, and we'll finish with this, the preaching of John. There were two pretty major responses to John. Either you hated his preaching and you wanted him dead, or you loved his preaching and you were anticipating that son of righteousness that brought healing with his wings. So I guess I want to end this by asking you, which person are you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray And I do pray for this church, and I pray for all who would hear this message, that we would be a people who would be anticipating and hungry for that deliverance that comes through the victory of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you made a promise at the dawn of man, at the very fall you made a promise, and then you kept that promise in Christ. And may, Father, that promise be the light that we ever walk in, producing, even as we've seen here with Zacharias and Elizabeth, a people who are righteous, people who are blameless, walking in your commandments, walking in your ordinances. Help us to be those kinds of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.